0: You're listening to The Melting Podcast, a writing variety show featuring a little of everything
1: from everyone,
0: everywhere.
1: Hey, lexiconosers and word chefs, welcome to another Balticon bonus episode of The Melting Podcast. I'm your head chef, A.F. Grappin.
0: And I'm your grill mistress, Erin Kazmar. Hi. Are you saying that to me or them? You. Why are you saying hi to me? We've been together all evening.
1: Why don't you tell them what the Balticon bonus episodes are?
0: Okay, I will, but that's not an answer to my question. Just saying. Do I need
1: a reason? Nah, I don't care. Yeah, that's what I thought.
0: So the Balticon bonus episodes are panels that were recorded at Balticon 50, especially for sharing with you all. Yes. Even though I didn't, you know, get to go. That's because you were baking. I know I was baking, but the bun is now out of the oven. He's freaking adorable. I know.
1: Little man.
0: Little man. You got your boy. I got my
1: boy. So anyway, before we start the panel, we do want to remind you that voting is still open for our cook-off challenge. But only for another five days. It closes on like the 20th, 20th or 21st. I forgot which day I said. One of those days.
0: And remember, there's a loophole on Twitter. Polls can only be open for a week, so potentially you have multiple opportunities to vote on the Twitter poll.
1: I have to reset it on, like, Mondays. Mondays. So vote now and then vote Monday. I don't know what day of the week this is. We recorded this in advance. (laughs) (laughs) And I've been having whiskey, so sorry, guys. (laughs) Oh no, we are adulting right now. But yeah, so you've still got a few days left to vote for your favorite on the cook-off challenge. Just check out our last episode, episode 33. Listen to both the stories. Vote for either Scott Roche's Sniffing Out Trouble or Austin Malone's Headlights. And you can help one of them win. And who knows, if you like them both equally, vote for one on Twitter. Vote for the other on
0: Facebook. (gasps) Another loophole. Dun-dun-dun.
1: Dun-dun-dun. Dramatic reverb. So we'll have our... You done? Yes. Okay. So we'll have another regular episode on September 1st. That one's going to be a main ingredient. And it has nothing to do with the Hogwarts Express. Okay. Sorry, I grew up a Potterhead. September 1st will always be Hogwarts Express Day. That's, yeah. Start a term. Good call. Good call. I'm ashamed I didn't catch that right off the bat. Hufflepuff forever. Slytherin. Sometimes Gryffindor is okay, too. No, Ravenclaw's all right. Hey, we've got them all covered at that point.
0: We're half and halves. Yay! We're half houses. Halfway houses.
1: Here's a panel. Enjoy.
2: I really appreciate it that you guys are
1: here. If it's cool, I'm going to record this for the Balticon podcast. Sure.
2: And I don't know. i got to look up to see what I'm supposed to be doing. (laughs) <laughs> at eight here because I have the one at nine also. Oh, the craft of writing. Okay, bring your coffee. Did you bring your coffee? You brought your coffee. The rest of you will have to leave. You didn't bring your coffee, so. Oh, you have your coffee too. You can stay also. And here comes a man with a coke. I guess we'll accept that. Oh, I don't know. It has caffeine it. It has caffeine. That's true. That's amazing. So. So, anyway, and the reason I'm late is because I walked around the entire other way, you know. (laughs) Which, thank God, this isn't all the way around. I mean, you don't walk a million miles and then have to turn around and, you know, walk back because you walked the wrong way. So, that's good. Yes.
0: I lost
2: as Oh, well, that's true. That you keep saying, my Fitbit is is adding up miles. That's true. Well, we were at a hotel in Washington, D.C. Um, that instead of having you know a quadrangle like this, it had this endless curve you followed this endless curve and you're like this is a media strip right I mean and you would see it curve it was a huge curve I have no idea how big this hotel was it had to be like two or three blocks big because the curve just went on forever and you just went and went and went and of course then there was no actually there was no circle so if you were at the last Room on that curve. Then you had all that oh, way wow. to walk back. Oh my god! So it was kind of a pain, but but so this is better. I'm trying to see. If this
1: is better. I just want to smack your armpits. Oh, where did we go? I like your H one. I like
2: your H one. So, how are you guys this morning? <laughs> You're up. <laughs> the hurricane hasn't eaten you. You're good. So, And they told great pirate jokes last night. So, when the councilman started to tell his pirate joke, I was like, that is my favorite pirate joke on the planet. I love that pirate joke. So I was so excited. It wasn't like, oh no, I know this pirate joke. It was, this is my favorite pirate joke. But how many of you were at opening ceremonies? Yeah, so you heard that. Yeah. So the other pirate jokes were terrible. But, <laughs> but, you know, you expect that from pirate jokes. Look, Courtney, look how many people I have. I was going to pretend that I didn't know Courtney when he walked in because I was going to pretend that he was an actual person who had come But now I can. can uh, so our presence gives him an identity. That's right. That's right. You're validating him. He doesn't have to be a shill pretending to be an actual person. Instead, he's just a very, very patient husband, extremely patient, who's put up with me all these years. wondering
1: now, so what's the pirate joke?
2: Oh, the pirate joke is, okay, so so this guy runs into a pirate in a bar, and the pirate, let me let me not screw this up. Just because it's my favorite joke doesn't mean I can tell it correctly. Okay, so, so the guy has a, he's got a wooden leg, and... Uh, so he says, well, how did you get the wooden leg? And he said, oh, my God, I was you know, at sea, and the shark jumped right out of the ocean and, and ate my leg. And he said, that is just terrible. And, and then he noticed that the guy also had a hook on his hand, and he said, how did, how did you get that? And he said, oh, same thing. This shark, it jumped up, and it took my hand. And then I had to get a hook. And he says, well, I noticed that you have a, a patch, what happened to your eye? He said, "Oh, a seagull pooped on my head." <laughs> and he said, "A seagull pooped on your head? How did that take your eyes?" And it was the first day with the hook.
1: <laughs> Isn't that a good joke? That's a good joke.
2: So, but I thought it was embarrassing that the city councilman outdid Stan Robinson and George Martin and all these people because
0: they the were just was apparently the councilman was a. Fans, so
2: heads into the number of people. Uh, that's right. Uh, yeah. yeah. I know. I was shocked by that. Trust me, in Denver, we never get the mayor or the city council <laughs> to come to, to our conventions. So, so okay. Well, thank you so much for coming at eight in the morning. <laughs> really appreciate it. I'd like you to know that I'm doing things at eight tomorrow and Monday. If any of you are up, um, but I wouldn't expect you. To do that. So anyway, um, very appreciative and um, glad to be here. And if I seem a little distracted uh, from time to time, we are leaving for Wales Saturday. <laughs> so I have to get home, do my laundry, repack, and then go. So, and if any of you have ever been to Wales or have any suggestions of what we should see, Talk yes. Jo. <laughs> oh, has Joe been to Wales? She's, Wales? She's from Wales. Oh, great. Okay, good. Uh, I know to go to something on hay some town some town on hay uh, because it 's the the world 's leading uh, used bookstore center. I know you all perked up at that didn 't you uh, and then um, and then we're we 're going to Gloucester cathedral where they where they uh, filmed um, one, two, and six of the Harry Potter films. Hogwarts is actually filmed in is actually the cloisters of of Gloucester Cathedral and also we're going to Gloucester Cathedral because um the guy uh Edward II was killed there murdered by his wife and her boyfriend um in a very Game of Thronesy kind of style uh they stuck a red hot poker up his rear end to murder wow. him apparently they said they didn't wish to have anyone know that it was not a natural death but they said the expression on his face kind of Gave it away, <laughs> and, and the fact that you could hear the screams from the castle for miles and miles away. So uh, we're going to go see that—not um, <laughs> that, but I mean his shrine. We're going to go see his shrine, and then um, oh, and then in Gloucester, the Taylor of Gloucester is the, the Beatrix Potter book. Which, if you've never read it, it's my favorite Beatrix there's, Potter there's book. There's
0: a seacoast town called Port Isaac. I've never yes, seen
2: Port Wen, yes, yes, where they filmed Doc Martin. We're going there. And Saving Grace. Oh, in Saving Grace. That's right. Yes. And we're going there to see Doc, Doc Martin and the dog. And my daughter says she wants to pose as one of the, I don't know if you watch Doc Martin, but the gaggle of girls who wanders past Doc Martin's house all the time giggling. So that's what she wants to do. Um, and if you have never watched Doc Martin, I mean, I know you guys are SF and fantasy fans, but it is, and it's not, but it is. The funniest, most wonderful show. It has just—it's just charming. Um, and then let's see what else. Doctor Who. A lot of Doctor Who is filmed in Wales. And Thomas the Tank Engine, of course. And I'm trying to think what else. Oh, and and then we're going to Tintern Abbey, um, because of course Wordsworth. So, um, and I. So I, we're doing as much literary stuff as we can. Oh, and we're going to Landudno. I know I'm mispronouncing all these names, but um, they have no. They have no vowels. I don't know how they get by without vowels and <laughs> whales. Uh, but anyway, uh, Landedno is the seacoast town where the, the Little family used to go for summer vacation, and Lewis Carroll joined the family there. And in fact, there are two rocks on the shore uh, called the walrus and the carpenter, which may have inspired uh, the walrus and the carpenter, So, which I thought was really cool. So... So anyway, we're going to do those things and a whole bunch of other stuff. So mines and caverns and seashores and walks and waterfalls and all kinds of junk. What's the toast? Here's to the Welsh who pray on their knees and on their neighbors. Oh, ooh, ooh, that's what seemed to be an anti-Welsh statement. Yes. It's an English toast. Uh, yeah. Well, the Welsh <laughs> name. Yeah, I was going to say the English uh, and the Welsh, uh, according to my boning up on the history, apparently not not in good terms for a long period of time. So... So anyway, thank you. For those of you who just arrived, thank you so much for coming this morning. I'm really, I am really—I thought I would be here by myself. I really did. So I'm really grateful that you got up so early. And I'm supposed to talk about the craft of writing, but I'm going to let you guys start it by asking me questions um, about... One of the things I want to make clear is that writing is almost all craft. All the stuff you hear about the, the muse and the Butterfly landing on your shoulder, and and you you going to Starbucks and scrawling a little in your journal with a beautiful fountain pen is all bogus. It's it's uh, it's all it's all craft. And uh, I uh, um, because I think most people come up with plenty good ideas. It's simply whether they have the skills to turn them into you know to things. And I would tell two stories on that basis. One is that. Um, I taught a whole thing on writing craft one time at the locus Awards, and um, um, and afterward, this guy stood up and kind of I said, "Did you enjoy the workshop?" And he said, "No." He said, I, "I came into this thinking you were a good writer, and now I realize it's just all tricks." <laughs> And I said, "Well, you're right about that. It is all tricks." However, Shakespeare used these same tricks, so so really, it's all tricks. So, and the other thing was, we we uh, live in near Denver, and the Denver Art Museum had a, um, uh, a Van Gogh exhibition of his early work, and um, it was a great oh, great exhibition. But anyway, you know, he has this reputation of being this you know, the, the, the mad genius, you know, he's like, if you think of a crazy painter who's all, all inspiration all the time, it's Van Gogh, but in fact, he took a correspondence course in drawing, did you know that, and he studied the color wheel, for, he, said, he said at one point in his early career, I'm not very good with color, so, and you're like, really? So so he had studied the color wheel and he took all these classes and and uh, he and Toulouse-Lautrec did flunk out of one of the classes because <laughs> clearly their style was not fitting with the traditional. But they, and I'm not saying he wasn't a genius, he was a genius, but, but he also studied his craft enormously. And one of the things he, he really emphasized was um, that, you heighten the contrast and by picking colors that are the exact opposite on the color wheel. And and if you think of the, the... I never remember the names, but the one with all the stars, the huge stars. Oh, nice. Yeah, that, that one, clearly, those yellows and blues are from exactly the opposite sides of the color wheel. But the one that stunned me the most was a little bitty painting. Um, and it was of a, it was a, gla- a, a glass jar, like a mason jar, with some cherry blossoms in it. And, um, so the pale pink of the cherry blossoms, and then there's a pale pink, pale green background. And I walked into the, to the room where it was and said, is that a light box behind the, you know, have they come up with some sort of light box? They had not come up with a light box arrangement, but it just glowed. And then when you looked, of course, the two colors were, The direct opposite on the color wheel and it was like oh my god that's so true so so that would be the one piece of advice i would give you to start here and that is that you always need to heighten the contrast in your work uh and in writing of course that doesn't mean using pink and green necessarily uh, but it means it means that you if if your hero if his if his um quality is courage, then you're going to need to show not only his courage, but also to show the cowardice of other people in their behavior. Um, if you want to show, fish out of water stories are, you know, very common. And they always work. And one of the reasons they work is that you're heightening the contrast. You're putting this, this cosmopolitan Parisian down in a tiny country town in Texas, you know, or you're putting an extremely modern, sophisticated person way in the past, or you're, you're doing something so that the contrast is as high as possible. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie Doc Hollywood. It was a while back. Uh, yes. uh, great movie. Great, great movie. And it's, it's a hot shot young New York surgeon who, uh, through an accident, ends up having to, to do medical work for a week in a, a little bitty southern town. And the clash between those two cultures is great. Partly because he's he, you would expect it to be, you know, he's going he's the smart city doctor who's gonna show the locals the thing. To in fact, the locals are way more sophisticated than he would ever imagine. Doc Martin was serious. and Doc Martin is the same the, the same basis. Yes, you're, he's this uh, London neurosurgeon who's stuck in this little bitty town, and uh, and those contrasts are really important. If you can, if you you definitely need to heighten the contrast. Jane Austen is a, if any of you are Austen freaks. Uh, is a a always does this? She is very good at it. Um, in Pride and Prejudice, of course, we have the example of a good good relationship with Elizabeth and Darcy, and but along the way, she shows us a whole bunch of really bad marriages. What is it, what it's like if you marry for love for money? and security You with Mr. Collins, oh my god. Uh, and what happens if you, if you uh, marry for lust, uh, and that's her sister Lydia, and what happens to various other people. She always has contrasting bad examples to show you the good example of what she thinks would make a good relationship. So, so heightening the contrast is something that you can really do that ups, the, ups your game um, in a story. Uh, so often, stories seem very diffuse. And uh, we watch a lot of indie films, we get things on Netflix, and then we watch, we, we notice what all the trailers are, and we, and we get those from Netflix. I would just like to say that there are some truly terrible indie <laughs> movies out there. And we have watched them all. <laughs> but you can kind of learn from them, you know. And one of my writing tricks is that I watch endless movies and, and of course read tons and, and not all of it really good because you can really learn from bad stuff. You're like, why didn't this work? This movie should have worked. This thing had Michael Caine in it and, you know, a script by this person. Why is it such a terrible movie? And you can almost always, if you, look at it closely you can say oh i see they didn't do this or they didn't do that and then and that and that will help you learn you almost learn more from the bad ones than the good ones um but the the bad ones can kill you also because some of them are (laughs) truly truly bad but one of the things that you'll notice in a bad movie is that it's very diffuse that they don't know where they're going they there's stuff all over the place and the story is not focused tightly and um and in a good movie, what you'll notice is that everything plays into either the main idea or to the contrast of those ideas. Um, that, that even the little random conversations that other people have, the person on the bus that they have to have an interaction with, will actually play into the main story. They make every single word work for them. And that, of course, takes multiple drafts. And, that, and the nice thing about writing this is not live theater, is that you get to write as many drafts as you need. No one will ever know. You are not required to put at the top of your, your uh, manuscript 87 separate drafts. You can keep fixing and fixing, and nobody will ever see the seams, unless you forget to take out the old stuff that you meant to have in that earlier version. Uh, you do need to take those things out. But otherwise... Um, uh, you can do it over as many times as you want, and that's my other tip. Is that I? Oh, what are we going to do here? I don't know what we're going to do. People can sit on the floor if they want, and they can come up front and sit on the floor if you want. I'm sorry, I did not expect anybody this morning. Somebody can have this chair. Somebody can have that chair. Thank you. Sorry. Just come and sit down. <laughs> and I apologize. Somebody can sit on the table if they want. <laughs> or or, or somewhere. something.
1: <laughs> Does
2: that work for you? you know what, that flips up. Oh, okay, good. Oh, good. Right. I think we
1: have a I think An we have discussion. a reasonable illustration
2: right here. I write that, Tighten <laughs> the contrast. There you go. <laughs> That's
1: right. Except I should have my tie.
2: There we go. Yeah. Just <laughs> the <laughs> audio,
1: a dragon just walked in.
2: <laughs> um, okay, so what I was going to say was that one thing I do on drafts is I, if I'm writing a complicated story, you know, somebody will say, wow, how would you do this? You have this conversation and then you have all this action and then you have all this, you know, all this subtle subtext stuff going on. Well, I didn't do it all at once. That's the answer. You do it, you, I, if I'm doing like a, a conversation, the main thing is to get the conversation down. The, what the points that I need down, you know, this conversation needs. So I just write the conversation as if I were writing a script or something, you know, no, a little enough he says and she says so I don't get lost. But but otherwise, just the conversation. Then I go back and I put in the the he says and she says and the business. You know, he picked up his glass. She hit him over the head. Whatever, you know, all that stuff. <laughs> and then I go. Then I make a list and say, okay, what needs what information needs to be in this scene? And did I get it in there? And the things that I didn't get in, then I go back and think, all right, this could be in this piece of conversation, this could be here, and put those in. And then I do one more pass to make sure that everything to get rid of everything that doesn't belong there. Because conversation, our conversations are very diffuse. You know, we talk in ums and ahs and and it takes us forever to get to the point and we ramble around and we discuss all kinds of things that aren't relevant to the situation. Dialogue is not conversation. It is a sort of condensed, stilled form of conversation. So the more, uh, the more you can get rid of all those odds and ums. But I write them down. I mean, I go ahead and do like what I would think the normal conversation is and then I go back and take all the extra out. So, but sometimes that takes me as much as five or six drafts. And then, of course... I go to bed, and then I wake up at three in the morning and think, this is the wrong scene, this won't work at all, and then I tear it up, and then I just start again, and then I realize that I can do it uh, a different way. I There's a, a great little movie, whose name I can't remember, by um, with uh, Burt Reynolds and Goldie Hahn, made back in the, in the 90s, yeah. 70s, 80s. Anyway, they're screenwriters. As, it's not, I mean, actually the movie isn't great, but it has a a great scene in it. So, so they're a pair of screenwriters who've, who've worked together forever. And in the course of the movie, they fall in love, and they get married, and they go see her parents, and they go see his parents, and then they break up, and then they get back together again. Okay, but none of that's relevant except that at the beginning of the movie, they're trying to do this, this scene where they've, they've got, and it's not even the final scene. They are trying to do this scene before the final scene of how they get their characters across the hall and into this other room for the final scene. And it's one of those little scenes in a movie that don't matter at all, but are really important. <laughs> and I'm like, I could so relate to this because I spend half my time doing those little bitty connecting scenes, you know. And so they're working on it at the beginning of the movie. And then as I say, they fall in love, get married, break up back together again at the end of the movie they're still working on this scene and I was like yes this is the story of my life and so and then he says to her the big revelation at the end of the movie is he says to her do we really need that scene
0: couldn't we have the big scene happen over here
2: and they don't have to go across the hall and she goes of course and then they busily go off and write it happily ever after and I was like yes that is so often the story of your life you uh, I have a very bad tendency to fiddle and fiddle and fiddle and fiddle with a bad scene and then only three or four weeks later to realize <laughs> the reason I've been fiddling is because it's such a bad scene and I needed a different scene that would work better. So so now I'm going to let you ask questions. And if if you guys want to come and sit down, or, it would kill me to stand back there. So, yes. All uh. right.
1: Uh, how do you work in
0: subplots then you're talking about this main trajectory of the storyline but you've got other little things hanging in there and out what from your idea of saying it's just going to be straight through subplots don't seem to be important
2: oh no no the subplots play into to the main story but but you have to have a main story and you have to have i i talk to people all the time and i'll say what's the plot of your story well um well it doesn't I mean, it's not a plot so much, it's more a vignette of real life. And I'm like, ah, no, vignettes are fine for your own lives, but plots are necessary for stories. I'm a very old-fashioned writer in that sense. Um, and I have never seen any story that could not, that with a plot that was, was not better than a story without a plot. All, all modern <laughs> literature aside. Um, and, and, and and you'll notice that classic literature like The Great Gatsby is a mystery novel it's a mystery novel on the level of who is Gatsby why is the title The Great Gatsby when it appears that he's not The Great Gatsby at least for the first part of the book and then the second one is who killed the woman so I mean it's an actual murder mystery Lolita is a road picture uh-huh. followed by a mystery and with an unreliable narrator who's lying to you the entire time. You know, these these are great. Shakespeare, of course, has really good plots <laughs> all the time. So I, I'm a big believer in plot. If you are that writer who doesn't believe in plot, great, but you should know how to do them, just like Van Gogh knows how to heighten the contrast. Um, okay, so so you... and. And the main thing in a plot is that something or some, something has to change. You have to have, they talk all the time in the movies about arcs, okay? And what they're talking about is movement. So we have to go from here to here. In Lord of the Rings, we go from the Shire to Mortar and back, okay? And Taking the long way around, of course. Okay, <laughs> we, so we physically move. At the same time, we go from Frodo being sort of a callow book reading youth who doesn't know much about the world to him being a saint by the end, a a person who is has learned a great deal and decided it's worth it to sacrifice himself, and then kind of has a last minute problem, and then but his friends help him. The end. Okay, so but so his Frodo has changed an enormous amount. Aragon has gone from a, a lonely uh, outsider to king. Okay, uh, there are. There are changes. When you're talking about your story, you should be able to move your finger. You should be able to say, okay, my character went from here to here in his character. My character learned something. Carol M. Schwiller, wonderful writer, says you should only write about people who need to change. That's not always true, but it's it's not bad. It's not a bad thing to use. Um, Doc Martin is a classic example of a story that a person who badly needs to change. Doc Martin is not a human being. He needs to become one. The the seven series so far, which have been intensely popular, are all because he is trying so hard to change. Yes?
0: Some writers are, are very adamant about plotting everything out, getting a legal pad, and doing kind of a detailed plot summary. How do you feel about that?
2: Okay. My... My philosophy of writing is: you figure out what works for you, and you do whatever works. I know, seat of the pants novelists. I was on a panel with Joe Haldeman and Nancy Chris, and we were talking about plotting. And Nancy said, "Well, I just get this idea, and then I just start writing, and I write to the end. <laughs> I don't know how she does it. And then, and then I go back and fix a few things, you know." Joe Haldeman said, and I said, "I I plot out everything. I have, I have." Uh, Outlines, I have, you know, storyboards, I have the whole thing. Okay. And then Joe said, okay, I write like maybe 300 words a day. I write the first sentence of the novel. When it's perfect, then I write the second sentence of the novel. When it's perfect, I write the third sentence. We are all staring at each other like, you're out of your mind. How do you work that way? And, but, but you've read Joe Haldeman, you've read Nancy Kress, my God, they're wonderful. So anything that works, works. And you have to figure out what that is. You, If, if you're having trouble, if you if your stories send, tend to go 100 miles and then sink into the sand, it probably might help if you thought of it in terms of, of plotting an outline. Um, if you're a person who who plots it out and then it dies in your hands like a butterfly, then maybe you need to do a little bit more seat-of-the-pants kind of writing. It, you, it takes a long time to figure out what kind of writer you are. And anything that works for you is great. I will have people say, what what kind of paper do you use? What kind of pen? Where do you work? And I'm happy to share those things, but really... <coughs> That's it's what works for me. I I can't work at home. If I work at home, there are a thousand distractions. The phone rings, and I'm like, and people say, well, don't answer your phone, and I'm like, it might be an emergency, and I can think in my head, oh my god, it's Cordy calling. Oh my god, they had an earthquake in California. Oh my god, she's pinned under something, and then I answer it, and it's of course a political survey. So, um, you know, but meanwhile, my concentration is broken. And then and then while I'm up though. You know, I hear the dryer beeping, and I really should go take those clothes out and put another load in the wash, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And besides, the cat wants to lie on my papers, and the dog needs to go out. and so. But when I'm over at Starbucks, um, all I, I have two choices. I can read the New York Times, or I can work, and that's it. So I tend to work over there. Other people, and the white noise of people around me doesn't bother me at all unless they have a really fascinating conversation. Like <laughs> the other day I heard someone say, I don't know why mom doesn't like him. I mean his parole officer said he was going to- <laughs> Now there's a story, yes, so heighten that contrast, yes, so anyway, um, but that doesn't bother me, other people need absolute quiet, other people need, you know, some people need windows they can look out of, some people need a blank wall to stare at, some people work best in the morning, in the evening, some people, Joe Haldeman has, writes with a $200 fountain pen, and um, I write. I used to write on Red Chief tablets till Mead stopped making them. Now I write on those those uh, spiral notebooks that you get at Target during the back-to-school sale. They cost 17 cents, and I go through dozens of them in a year. So I stock up then, and I use a 19-cent Bic pen, none of which is relevant to you, except that you should figure out what it is that works for you. And, um, and people give you all kinds of advice. I was told... Um, I, I was writing as a young mother at home, okay, and I was told it, y- there's no point in sit- even sitting down unless you have a three-hour block because, you know, you can't get into the flow and work. And I was like, I'm going to be 90 before I have a three-hour block to myself. <laughs> so so I just ignored that, and I started carrying a notebook with me everywhere. and um, And so... I would write for 15 minutes on the bleachers while waiting for my daughter to finish with her, her practice. And I would wait for 15 minutes at the orthodontist, and I'd write. And you can't write much in 15 minutes, but you can write, like, you can write a paragraph. You can start outlining your plot. You can, you can do a description. You can do a flashback, whatever. And then I would get all these little scraps of paper, and then I would lock myself in the car. Yes, I did used to lock myself in the car in the driveway and try and finish the story. Because uh, it was the only way to get any. Uh, I remember writing the end scene of Firewatch in the car with Cordelia banging on the window saying, Dad doesn't know where this spatula is. So, so, so you know, it, 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 all the advice didn't work for me because it didn't fit my lifestyle, you know. And so you have to figure out. And and the the only thing I would say is it's really important to try to write every day if you can because the more you make it part of a habit and they say it takes what six months to break a bad habit or start a new good habit um you need to, to the, the sooner you can get to that six months level then if you don't write you'll start feeling really itchy and like you desperate to write and you will then make the time to write so i really recommend that so so anyway yes yeah very and let me, One second. Anybody who wants to come up and sit on the floor, please feel free to do that.
0: Lots of floor space up here.
2: Lots of floor space. I'm sorry. And thank you so much for coming at this ungodly hour. So, And hello. Good morning, boys.
0: Good morning. Good morning.
2: How are you? Okay. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Well,
0: very popular today your series. Yes.
2: And
0: how does, and I, I imagine this series too, how does a writer set up the book so that you you have a satisfying conclusion for the for the reader and yet still leave something open for the next book uh yeah et cetera boy you know you get a real bad job one time and i imagine you know what i mean i
2: don't um, (laughs) know you have to
0: tell me
2: obviously not yeah (laughs) obviously not i mean you know but i really felt like i was left Oh. You know, but, but ordinarily, that you do that very. Well. I hope you're not talking about blackout. Yes, I am talking oh, about blackout. Blackout is just half a novel. That yeah, I know. Mean, the half didn't come out for a no, That know. wasn't my fault. That was my <laughs> publisher's <laughs> fault. It was written as it was written as one book, one book. I turned it in as one book. I sold it as one book. I was paid for one book, and then my publishers published it as two books. What Not you, my fault. Your
0: excuse
2: and the publisher is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or you're, you can always blame your publisher. That's good advice for you. Anytime.
1: <laughs> every every, time, your every <laughs> time a writer's
2: there's a problem with a book.
0: Blame, blame your publisher. That is
2: correct. Blame your publisher. <laughs> so no, that is a problem with series. And um, and I don't actually write series. If you'll notice, like like my time travel books. Mister Dunworthy's the only connecting character there. Uh, each has a separate hero and, or heroine, and, uh, and the, and their story is complete in that, in that thing. So I'm probably not the best person to ask about series. But I think the main thing is that you're gonna, yes, you are gonna need to have a satisfying ending for your, for your, for a character. And I know the way that some people do it is to have just different leading characters in each of their the is books but it's it's unfair to and i and i hate that i used to watch soap operas a lot and uh and the soap operas would do actually very good stories but then they'd completely undo it but i mean you know tom and barbara would finally get together after a thousand years and all these tri- trials and tribulations and you would be so happy and then 10 minutes later they would break them up so that they could have another story and and you don't the main thing you don't want to do is to ever undo something that you have already done. You know, uh, I would say the worst example in history is probably um, Alien, the Alien movies, where oh. in Alien 2... It, I
0: think it was Alien 2 to
2: Alien 3. Right. Alien, Alien
0: 3 basically...
2: Ch- I refuse un- Alien 3 undid everything that Alien 2 had done. You know, she spends the whole time saving the little girl. And and that is the entire focus of the movie is to save the little girl. And then you find at the beginning of Alien Three that no, the alien had gotten the little girl afterward. And while while they were in cold sleep, and, and she's dead, and and, uh, and Ripley's infected. And I'm like, what? You know. And so you you really don't want to do that. You'll infuriate if you if you have gotten a couple together after you know long long trials and tribulations. Uh, you don't then break them up. You can break them up through through uh, circumstances. I think uh, Sondheim does a wonderful job in Into the Woods, where the second half of the story proceeds logically from the first half. But is not. it's not that Cinderella gets married and then is not happy with the prince. It's that Cinderella gets married and then something that everyone did in the first act comes back to haunt them and to destroy their lives. But it is not... Something that they have just they've they've gotten what they want, and now they've decided they don't want it anymore. they have had an outside force come in and and take it from them so so that's okay in uh in the book the new Bridget Jones book, not the movie but the new book um Bridget married you know Darcy finally and then um and they lived happily ever after and had a child and everything and then he died of a heart attack fairly young and then that's the plot, but that's okay because. They didn't break them up. They didn't get a divorce. In the movie, I think they get a divorce. And I'm like, you guys are treading on dangerous ground here because people don't want to see that unless they're going to get them back together again. So, but it's, it's, you don't want to undo what you've done. And then the second rule of writing, hard, second hard and fast rule is never kill the dog. <laughs> <laughs> and the addendum to the never kill the dog is make sure you know who the dog is. Because what there it isn't is no always because it isn't always a dog. It isn't always a dog. Well, I if if anybody if any of you know me, you know that I am just a freak about the BBC series *Primeval*, which I think was the best TV series ever. Uh, it's a really dumb series about dinosaur hunting in modern day London, so it should so it shouldn't be good. But the, the characters were wonderful. The dialogue was amazing. The plot structure fooled me over and over when I cannot be fooled by plots I've been doing it too long uh and and it had irony it was like if you have this kind of crummy adventure in the states they'll put b-level actors and c-level scriptwriters on it you know and the and it'll be terra nova a terrible terrible series which lasts like three episodes um and also was about dinosaurs um but here they put A-level, A-level actors and A-level uh, writers, and they really tried to do a wonderful job of it, and it's just a great series. But and now I've forgotten where I was going with that. Don't kill, uh, <laughs> don't, don't, kill <laughs> don't kill the dog. Oh, okay. So so I force all my friends to watch it. I watch it, and then my goal in life is to find other people who haven't watched it so that I can. You can watch it with them. So, so I was forcing this group of friends to watch, one of whom is a true animal lover. And the, in the first episode, Abby and Connor rescue this little tiny flying dinosaur. Okay, and About well, that big, maybe. Okay? And uh, his name is Rex. And by the end of episode three, my friend said, you have to tell me if Rex makes it to the end of the series, or I'm not watching. <laughs> and I said, my wife. Do you care about you know any of these characters, these human characters? No. You just and I said, Well I told you I wouldn't do any spoilers. I don't want to do any spoilers. She said, That's the you do that spoiler, or I'm not watching. Mm-hmm. And I assured her that Rex would be fine. Even though he is in danger a lot, but he would be fine by the end of the series, and then she was willing to watch the rest of it. Now people get killed right and left. It's about dinosaurs. But that was what she wanted don't ever underestimate that. People really care about, they care about innocent characters and characters who don't deserve their fate. When um, when Dickens was writing um, Old Curiosity Shop, it was serialized. And so it was coming, you know, month by month to America on the packet boats. And Groups of people would gather at the docks. This is like Game of Thrones or something, you know. Gather at the docks and shout out, Did Little Nell die? With <laughs> the boat. And in fact, yes, little <clears throat> Nell, he does kill Little Nell. And, and uh, there were people, one British um, MP wrote that he was reading the book on the train and threw the book out the window. <laughs> he was so furious. And others vowed that they would never read Dickens again. So you have to be really careful when you're... Dealing with characters that that people really love, and with <laughs> little Nell, I mean, she was you know a young innocent girl who was the dog. Obviously, she was the dog. <laughs> so you need to make sure it, a person can be the dog, um, and and you need to make sure that you figured that out. I know people right now on te- television series, especially they they want stuff for the shock value, they want stuff for the big you know season ender and all that, and and that's fine, but. But you have to be careful not to alienate your audience by doing something that they find unforgivable. And I would say the trickiest part of writing is simply that you have to um, you have to fulfill the audience's expectations. You know, if 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 you're if everything is pointing toward Bob and Betty or Bob and Tom getting together, you you have to do that. But you, but you also at the same time have to surprise them. If you don't surprise them, they'll say it's contrived and stupid and cliched. If if you do something totally against expectations, they'll be furious with you. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a Gina Davis movie. We'd seen a, a trailer for it, and you know she's a single single woman, and she gets accidentally pregnant and then there's 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 pregnancy jokes and then there's labor jokes and there's this guy that she meets that you think might be the new romantic interest and we're like this is our kind of movie you know okay so we go to see the movie and yes indeed uh, we have we have pregnancy jokes and labor jokes and new baby jokes and then the baby dies oh. yeah. and we were so mad <laughs> and it was and it wasn't you can do that you know you can do it if you, you can do anything if you set it up But you have to set it up. And then
1: have the baby
2: be sick and then die. Exactly. Setting it up. Or having, or all along having little hints that something might go wrong so that you know where the story is going. You can do anything, really anything. You can kill the dog even. But you have got to set it up properly. And that's the whole key. And by setting it up, it's got to go back. And I do, I talk about foreshadowing, but I think foreshadowing is like the wrong word. I think it should be called backshadowing or something because so much of it has to go back there in the beginning of the story. And often you don't know that you're going to need it until you get here and you're writing away and you realize, oh my gosh. And then you've got to go back and put that in and set that up. When I was writing blackout and all clear, I'm sorry about that. Um, uh, I have, um, I got to page whatever in all clear where, where, uh, they, they're they in the middle of the blitz and Eileen is there, is somehow in charge of this ambulance and um, and they've got to get this dying man in the back to the hospital. And she's got the two kids with her. And I needed to have the little 11-year-old girl drive the car and I needed to have the little 8-year-old boy navigate through the streets of London, which neither one is logical because... You know, they would have no experience of those things. This is writing, you can do what you want. <laughs> uh, well, that's true. But I had to go back and I had to put in a whole scene way early in the story where Eileen is is with the kids at the manor and the, the lady of the house decides that everyone should learn how to drive. Everyone on the staff should learn how to drive wow. just because of the, the war. And so then the kids, who are awful kids there, Awful kids, uh, and they're so poorly behaved that Eileen does doesn't dare leave them behind while she's taking the, um, you know, the lessons, driving lessons, because they'd probably burn the house down. So she ends up taking them in the car with her, and then they demand to be given driving lessons. And being the awful children that they are, uh, <laughs> the vicar eventually gives in and teaches them how, teaches the little one how to little ones how to drive, and then. And then at a later point, they're all quarantined with measles and Eileen is at her wit's end and the vicar sends over things for them to do, for the kids to do. And one of the things is a a plane spotting kit so that the kids, which is full of maps and uh, maps of London, (laughs) so the kids can do, so the little boy avidly studies the maps and then so he's able to do the plane spotting. But that whole scene is in there specifically so that when we get to this, you're saying, oh, my God, I hope they make it to the hospital. You're not saying, well, where the hell did she learn how to drive? You know, you're know, you not saying those things to yourself. When you get to, when you get to the end of, a, of an Agatha Christie, you're supposed to say, oh, my gosh, of course. Why didn't I think of that? You aren't supposed to say, wait, what? I'm really confused. You need to, it's all got to be set up, and it's got to be set up in a secret way so that it doesn't look like you're doing setup. When I did the the whole thing at the manor, I made that look like it was comic relief. I made it look like it was to show you how horrible these children are, and how and and how put upon Eileen was, and uh, to develop a little romance between Eileen and the vicar also that I needed for later. So, but it didn't look. I hope it didn't look like it was giant foreshadowing. 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 You want to avoid that. Yes. Yeah.
0: Do you thinking that's that's one of the things that makes the, the, the climax of the Lords of Discipline so shattering? Is you sudden you know it's suddenly revealed to the protagonist just why everything has been going wrong for him?
2: Right, and, right. You know, it's, but it's all set up, right?
0: It's all set up, and you, and when you go back and reread it, you can see. Yeah. But see but you, not when, when you're read, doing it. Right. When you read it for the first time, it's it hits you as hard as as it does the character.
2: Yeah. It's heartbreaking. Right. Well, that's that's true of like uh, Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca, mm-hmm. a, a story which just has a stunning ending. And uh, and yet it's it's all right there on the first page. It's on the first page. You were too stupid to see it on the first page. And so one thing I really recommend if you're wanting seriously to write is to read, read books twice, watch movies twice. Once, lose yourself in it, be as stunned as you like, <laughs> just watch it like you... Ordinarily watch it. Second time, go through. How did they do that? How did they set that up? Where are the clues? One of my favorite movies is the original Ocean's Eleven. Not the later series, but the Frank Sinatra one. And it's about a caper in Las Vegas. And um, in the middle of that caper, it's beautifully planned. And it goes off without a hitch. And then one of the guys drops dead in the middle of the street. And, of course, puts a huge you know hang up in the plot okay well that's you're told never to do that that's a coincidence that's you know an act of god a deus ex machina you're told not to do that plotting and i was like i never felt that way when i saw that movie why didn't i feel like that was a deus ex machina and so i went back and i watched the movie oh my gosh it's so great first of all they have the guy go see his doctor you know he's sick but they never say what it is but that's just a very brief scene, and that's during the scene when you're they're setting up the reason why each of these guys agrees to go along with the caper. So it's kind of lost in the middle of all that. So, but then I went through the dialogue. There are like 19 references to heart attacks, wow. and you're going to kill me, and they're all jokingly done. You know, it's said by, "Oh my gosh, you gave me a heart attack," you know, when you said that, or "or you guys are awful, you're trying to kill me." You're trying to destroy me with a heart attack. And I went through, and I was like, it's all there. And you don't even notice this. I mean, it's all just so in the background. And yet, when you get to the, to the, to the big thing that happens, then, then it's all set up, and you're not thinking, that, well, where did that come from? You're thinking, of course, of course. <laughs> and then there's also a wonderful scene where, the, where they, they lay out the whole plan to Dean Martin, who's the last person to arrive. And uh, and they say, so what do you think? And he says, I think it's a great plan. I think there are no problems. I think you should all go home and go back to your regular jobs. And they say, well, why? What's wrong with the plan? And he said, nothing. But this is Vegas. The odds are with the house. <laughs> and then when the guy drops dead of a heart attack, you realize... The odds are with the house. <laughs> and it's just beautifully done because you it, you don't see it coming, and yet it's like like with the Lords of Discipline. It's all right there. And you can do that. You can do all that. It's But you have to go back, multiple drafts, and you have to go back and put it all in in the right place. A little bit here, a little bit here, a little bit here. Hide it in the bushes. Hide it in plain sight. Hide it in different ways. Make people think that it's there for some other reason. And and then spring it on them at the end. Yeah. Um, so you said earlier that we should get into a habit of writing every day.
0: How does revision, being stuck in revisions forever, um,
2: affect that? Does that count as writing? Oh yeah, it counts. That's okay. okay. <laughs> right. Of course, that counts. As writing. Uh, uh, revision is is nine tenths of writing. So so. But but uh, one thing that a lot of writers do, and what when I'm not under deadline, which I hate being under deadline um, because you can't pick and choose what you write. But what I really like to do is to have stories at a couple of stages: to have one in the revision stage and one, one where I'm just making up the story and one where I'm writing the first draft. Uh, if I can have that, then then I hardly ever get stuck because if I get stuck on one, I just go work on the other, you know. Um, but but when you're under deadline, that doesn't. That doesn't always work. But yeah, oh, of course, revision counts as writing. And, and, you know, Heinlein is famous for saying never revise and stuff. He was talking about don't revise when you're on spec and, you know, don't revise for a publisher who hasn't offered you a contract. That's what he meant. He didn't, obviously, he did a ton of revision on his own work. And, um, and even if he had said that, he would have been wrong. It's, it's wrong. You, you, revision is, is everything and your first draft uh, Jim Kelly, James Patrick Kelly I don't know if you're familiar with his writing he's a wonderful science fiction short story writer and, um, and his I have seen his first, first drafts at workshops and they're terrible, I mean they're truly terrible he is, he is all revision all the time <laughs> you know, other people can turn out pretty passable first drafts but he his, he's, it's just he gets something down so he can mess with it and then he messes and messes and messes with it till it's brilliant.
0: Um, so, I have yes. One question. Um, what do you say, um, what's your opinion, you this for sorry, I was late, but um, on revising as you go. See, what I do is of I, I'm writing along and then I'm like, oh, like I get to a point where like, oh, I should have put that in. And then instead of just keep going with the story, you go back and
2: you think, yeah. or when you start writing, today, you trick down and you're like, oh, I should change that sentence. And you do it. Yeah. Just keep going, keep going. Is uh, okay? Sh- of People course. argue that it's not good. Okay. okay, okay. My, uh, as I, what the part you missed was i told everybody you have to figure out what works for you and and everybody different things work for everybody and so you you figure out what works best for you i have known people who will get stuck they'll they'll instead of moving forward they'll start revising and revising and revising and they never ever finish the story uh I have known people who who finish a story and then continue to revise it, and they'll bring it to you like the, it'll be an old yellow carbon paper thing from 40 years ago, and they're still working on this. It's like, write something new. I think you just need to write something new. So you don't want to get stuck forever, you know, but no, there's nothing wrong with that. And there's nothing wrong, and you can write forward or you can write backward. I write my books totally out of sync. I will write the first scene, and then I'll write the last scene, and then I'll write the love scene in the middle, and then whatever whatever I know how to write, I will write. And then and then I'll piece it all together. When I wrote Blackout and All Clear, I have three viewpoint characters, four or five viewpoint characters. And, and I wrote each of those separately. I wrote Polly's story all the way through. I wrote Eileen's story all the way through. I wrote, and then I put them together, because I couldn't keep it all straight. And, uh, and I wrote out of sequence. And I wrote, um, when I was writing to say nothing of the dog, um, and I was writing out of sequence, I, c- I couldn't remember. So there, are, my manuscripts have all these things at the top that say, he, she still thinks he's a murderer. <laughs> so f- Because I couldn't remember where I was in the story otherwise. Yeah, Yeah, I was just
1: going to ask about that because I write out of sequence too. And the problem I tend to have is then the character arc, I have to have all these side notes right. as to
2: what so-and-so thinks right. or where they are in their development Right. Or- and right, and you read it together, and it's, it's right. And then yeah. you have to go back and fix it because you okay. know and even it up. I, it and and sometimes people find that it works best to just work front to, you know, chapter one all the way through. But it, it's just whatever works for you. Yeah, um, this is a slight so. change of subject. How do you balance um, research and creating stories? Oh, oh, or well, it I, don't it. <laughs> I don't balance it. I don't balance it. I would I would do research forever. I hate writing. I hate writing. I love doing research. So I have to sort of discipline myself to not just do research forever. I would, I would still be looking up stuff about World War II. In fact, I am still looking up stuff about World War II, even though I'm done. People send me all these great things about World War II, and then I have to look them up. That's the fun part for me. If you love research, then you need to kind of discipline yourself a little. If you hate the research... You need to learn to love the research because, because the research is essential. And there's research on every story, not, ju- not just if you're writing historical things or, or uh, something set on a space station where you need specific kinds of research. You need to be researching all kinds of stuff. I, the first letter I ever got, and by the way, in your careers, if you are thinking, you will get these breathless letters saying, oh, my God, I love your writing. You're wonderful. Forget it. You will, get, you will get letters saying, I really liked your book, but. <laughs> and then there will be a six-page, single-spaced analysis of how you got the word <coughs> rolock wrong. Uh, and the word Rolock was, by the way, not wrong, but <laughs> they thought it was. So, uh, But the first letter I ever got was for a story I wrote in Galileo back in the 1980s. And in it, my heroine was... She was a housewife, and in her spare time, she had a a, a sort of kind of psychic gift, and so NASA had come to her secretly to try to get her to call this spaceship that was lost home, okay? And she's doing this while still being a housewife, and no one knows she's doing it. So as you can see, it was a really hard, high-tech story, right? Okay, so, so anyway, so she couldn't do this by sitting down you know, clasping her hands and thinking. She had to, it came from the peripheral part of her brain. So she had to be, keep doing the housewifey things. So I had her, you know, mop the floor and do all these housewife things and do the dishes, and then I set it and cleaned behind the couch where she found seven pennies, nine pencils, and the missing molasses swamp card to the Candyland game. <laughs> I got four letters. There is no molasses swamp card in the Candyland game. I don't know where you do your research, but it's wrong. There is a molasses swamp, but there is no molasses card. Try to get your research right. And I first thought, don't you people have anything better to do? And then, and then I thought, okay, well, that's really an important lesson. Because actually, they're right. In the, Well, first, there is no molasses swamp. I had... Sold my daughter's Candyland game at the garage sale. What can I say? I didn't have access to the (laughs) reason. But what I felt it showed was that people really care about details, and the reason they do is because you're trying to cast this spell on them. You are trying to convince them that instead of sitting in their home or on the bus reading, they are, in fact, in the Middle Ages or they are in France or they are wherever or in space. And so if you make a mistake... If you make a mistake, then you kick them right out of that story. And then not only do they have to get back into the spell, but then they also may not trust you with anything else you tell them. So really little details do matter. And so some of the worst, the stories that I've had to do the most research on are the ones where I thought I knew what I was doing. I, we used to live in Arizona. I set, a, I set last to the Winnebago's in Phoenix, and I had to get maps out. Because I knew that if I didn't put the 7-Eleven at the correct address, that I would get letters and people that were kicked out of the story. I did a story set in Denver, where we still live an hour from Denver. And I had to go drive the route to make sure that you can drive the route that I had my characters driving so that I wouldn't get <coughs> letters. So so there's research involved in every single story. Not, not always massive amounts of book research, but there's always research. Yeah.
0: Do you... Um, how far do you plot out the arc of your stories, and do
1: you use story beats before you start writing
2: it? I don't know what you mean by story beats. Uh, never
1: mind that. How far do you plot out the arc?
2: Okay, of your I life? okay. Given the caveat that not everybody does it the same way, you can do it any way you want. I I do plot my entire book, but I plot because because almost always I'm using a mystery plot kind of kind of plot, and so you can't plant the clues for your mystery unless you know how it's all going to work out. Um, so, uh, I usually have the basic outline of the story the ba- and not, not, you know, Roman letter, numero one, A B C kind of outline, just, a here's what's going to happen kind of outline. Um, but I do change. I do change. I have changed. If I think of something better, I will change in doomsday book. Um, I fully intended to have Mr. Dunworthy go try and rescue Kivrin. And, and then at the last minute, realized that Colin, there was no way Colin was going to let him go by himself. And I was like, oh, okay, I like that better. I think Colin will go. But that was never my original intention. Colin was just, Colin was invented for one reason. And this is, this is I do this differently than some people. Some people come up with the character and they have a personal relationship with their characters and stuff. I don't. I, I come up with my plot, and then I invent my characters to suit my plot. Who would work best in this position? So in Doomsday Book, I needed to tell the audience massive amounts of stuff. I needed to tell them about the Black Death. I needed to tell them about the Middle Ages. I needed to tell them about the, the, the nature of viruses. I needed to tell them how time travel worked and all this stuff. And... So I had to come, up, and poor Mr. Dunworthy, had. there was no one he could talk to. The only person he liked, Dr. Aarons, was in the middle of the epidemic. She was at the hospital. The other professor was out at the dig. The two professors in town were morons and not someone you would ever talk to. And they knew everything, so they would never ask any decent questions. So I thought, who would be a good person to ask questions? And so then a kid, I thought, kid would, because kids don't know stuff. But they're not not because they're not stupid, not because they're stupid, <laughs> but because they they just haven't experienced these things. So they're logical. If they ask you, so what do you mean, black death? What's the black death? You know, if an adult asks you that, you might think they they should know that, but a kid wouldn't. So I made up Colin simply so he would have someone to talk to, and then Colin was became my favorite character. But he was he was smart and he was there, and I'd have him do this and I'd have him do that. And, and I, he was good for comic relief, and I had him fill in a, comic relief a lot of times and made him into a real character, but, but into such a, a good, smart, decisive person that there was no way he was going to let Mr. Dunworthy go by himself to get given. And so then I had to let him go. So I had kind of written myself into a situation that I hadn't intended originally, but yeah. But I changed that. So, so And my husband is calling time here. Mm-hmm. so uh, so I just have quick question. Question. you have a quick question okay um, so, but let me tell you where I go next in case you want to follow me and we'll continue this discussion uh, I go to where Where do ideas come from in Guilford the, Guilf- I don't know where Guilford is I'm assuming it's on 5th on on fifth floor 6th fifth floor 6th floor, Sixth floor. Sixth floor. Sixth floor? Okay. Mm-hmm. okay I'll see you, some of you down there thank you for coming so,
0: Thank you for listening to The Melting Podcast. You can check out our website with submission guidelines and current
1: prompts at themeltingpodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Melting Podcast. Or you could email us themeltingpodcast at gmail.com. The Melting Podcast is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means you're free to copy it and share it, as long as you don't change it, don't sell it and always link back to the website
0: sound effects are by the free sound project
1: and our theme is by drew rich Creek.
0: send us stuff